0: Our scripture reading today is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verses 20 through 32, which is located in our church Bibles on page 537. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Please be seated.
1: Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, we recognize this. We know that we don't have it within ourselves, within our kind of native wisdom to know the way to go. We need to be led by you. We need your light to show us where to go in the darkness that we kind of carry around with us. Lord, we're in this strange place of being Israelite and yet also persisting Amalekite. We are justified by Jesus Christ and yet we have these, this residue of this sinful ways of thinking and being, Lord, you know that about us. Lord, would you continue to guide us, would you continue to empower us to follow you, to be obedient to you, to submit to you, and to uh, look to you in faith, in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'm going to start by showing you an excerpt from a movie I'm pretty sure you have not seen. It was made by a filmmaker by the name of Jane Levitt, who took her movie camera into East Harlem in New York City in the spring of 1944, and recorded footage there of the people simply going about their lives. I think it's a remarkable thing to look at a movie like that and to acknowledge who those people were. I asked myself, who were they? Those faces that seem so distant from us now, I think profoundly we can say they are us. Although they seem so uh, far away, and of course in black and white, uh, it looks distant. But those are people like us. They came here as immigrants, and they found a home here. They were Americans. It's quite possible that some of you are related to some of them. They are part of our history. They're part of our story. Those faces that we see, although they seem to be living different lives from us, are very much the same as us. I wonder how often the man who wrote so much of Proverbs, King Solomon, would hear from his palace the bleating of sheep, and remember that his own grandfather had been a sheepherder, or that his great-great-grandmother was Ruth, the immigrant from Moab. Well, in a similar way, I think, to us, with all of our comparative wealth, In the 21st century. This book, Proverbs, wants us to think quite consciously about the poor, the experience of being poor. There are more references here to the poor than in any other book of the Bible. And what we read here in Proverbs is, in general, two things that we need to know. Number one, that our focus should return regularly to the experience of being poor, because that's what the Almighty thinks about. That's what he looks at, we're told. He defends the rights of the poor, Scripture says. And secondly, that how we deal with the poor, how we deal with the poor, really matters to God and affects then how he then deals with us. So God's people themselves have been poor. That's our history, right? not necessarily economically, but certainly in spirit. And in Psalm 68, we're told that God has dealt bountifully with us. And that's why we start a sermon looking at wealth and poverty by looking to the experience of the poor and God's heart for them. We're going to look at these themes of wealth and poverty using this chapter, Proverbs 14. But we could look throughout the book of Proverbs, and we'll look at several other verses, too. It's going to be our starting point as we examine, uh, really, the issues of wealth and poverty under three headings. Number one, how we treat the poor. Number two, how we make wealth. And number three, how God gives us true riches through a poor man. So let me encourage you, if you've got the uh, worship guide in your hands, on the reverse side of it, you should find Proverbs 14, which are the words that Teresa read to us. And if you have a Bible to hand as well, we'll be looking at a couple of other texts as well. But first of all, how we treat the poor. How do we treat the poor? Verses 20 through 21. This is what it says in Proverbs 14. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. As far as we know... Poverty existed from the moment that our first parents fell, from the moment that they stepped out of Eden into the howling wilderness to till the ground. They knew poverty. They were told in Genesis 3 that the ground would yield but little to them and the labor to get produce from it would be hard. Poverty is still defined today as the experience of not having enough resources to make basic needs. And I imagine that they knew immediately what that felt like. And as humanity grew, the distribution of those resources became quickly uneven. The strong took the best from the weak. And that's still, isn't it, so often the way the world goes. So even now, so many centuries later, we haven't defeated poverty. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. It's something in it that's linked to the experience of being fallen and human. And so we, we know it's true. The Bible doesn't contest the existence or wealth of poverty. Its concern, you may notice, is not for the economic brackets that human beings live within, but for the human beings that live within those economic brackets. So the concern here is, first of all, for the poor person, isn't it? For the poor man or woman, for the basic social connections, that they have for what their experience of life is. Verse 20. Isn't it interesting that it should start here? The poor person is disliked. They're socially excluded. They're not the toast of all their friends. They are shunned, they're avoided. I think most of us this, the lesson of this in high school. People flock to people with nice cars and with nice clothes from nice houses and nowadays from nice gaming systems. This is the way the world is. The writer is telling us somewhat dryly, this is the way things go. On top of everything else about being poor, it's a lonely life being poor. Misery, as it turns out, actually doesn't get company. But verse 21, at another level as we read on, it gets worse than that. This is the experience. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. Or in the original language, whoever despises his neighbor literally holds them to be of less account, less significance, less value. That person sins. In other words, they are doing something which makes God sad. So this is the experience of poverty, and again still, that the poor are looked down on, even through the suffering of being poor person on your street who hasn't mowed his lawn in months, the neighbor who always leaves his beaten up car parked outside your house, the people in the apartment next door whose dogs are barking because they're left alone all day. Don't despise them, the Bible says. If you find your first reaction to look down on them and count them of less value, you're to resist that reaction. Don't curse them. Don't avoid them. Don't rush to assumptions about them and your superiority over them. The person standing on the street begging or living homeless may not be there because he or she is scamming you, but because they genuinely have no other option. Regardless of the cause of their situation, the warning here is for us, isn't it? Not for them. The warning is for us. Verse 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but by contrast, blessed is he who is generous to the poor." I'm uh, far from poor, but I feel like I've been on the receiving end of that kind of contempt, as you may also have been from time to time. At a party in the near West End a few years ago, I remember I was having, I thought, a good conversation with someone, only to have the experience, and this was totally strange, of having somebody turn 180 degrees away from me, uh, even as either words were coming out of my mouth. And it turned out they had seen someone coming out of the corner of their eye and they didn't want to be seen speaking to a Southside pleb like me. I was upset. I thought to myself, who does this person think he is? If anyone's going to be turning away from someone like a snob, it should be me. Where does he think I got this outrageous Downton Abbey accent? (laughs) But economics aside, if you get to know your neighbour, what do you discover? If you spend time investing in the person who is of less advantaged economic circumstances than you, what do you discover? Well, actually, they're not different than you. Life is harder from them, but they are the same person, essentially, the same kind of person, the same God made you both. And the same basic concerns and hopes you have for you and for your children, they do too. And secondly, if we love God, we discover this, don't we? that he is not pleased with the ways in which we despise people or we buy into looking down on our fellow human beings. In fact, if you read Scripture, I think it's been well said that God's bias is often to the poor, to our surprise. To those of us who live in really quite separated lives in the suburbs, which I think was part of the point in making the suburbs, this has to be a definite vision for us that we would invest ourselves in one way into helping those who are poor. This is the kind of church that we've long had a vision to be, to be a, a church which whatever else we do is characterized by practical mercy and kindness to the poor, and as you know, we try to do that in a number of different ways, both in this country and also overseas. Simple human kindness. What would you hope someone would do for you if you were in the same situation? One of the best pieces of advice I ever got for how to help to build bridges was from my colleague Dawn James in a class here on racial reconciliation. Maybe start, she suggested, by saying hello, by greeting your fellow human being. You'll be surprised how rarely it happens. Perhaps how you will surprise them by being so. No need to be patronizing take a genuine interest, be a help, be hospitable, be human. The question is very much a practical one as a matter also of the heart and conscience. Are we despising the poor? And again, you don't have to feel ill towards the poor, but by uh, the practical ways that we ignore them or overlook them or treat them as less than us or somebody else's issue, we are not showing them God's mercy. You know, as I look at that video, and it's part of a longer piece, there's some 16 minutes of video shot in East Harlem in 1944. Job says this in Job 31, and I think this is really poignant. He asks himself this after all of the things that he's been through. He says of his poor neighbor, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mother's? I think the challenge to us is that we are so easily squeezed into the world's mold in these ways. But human beings made in the image and dignity of God are uniquely valuable to God, regardless of their income bracket. So let's be determined as his people to be bold proponents of their value in this world and examples of his love in the way that we treat them. Second, verses 22 through 24, how we make wealth. Notice, still speaking of wealth, the writer asks, do not they go astray who devise evil, but they who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. These verses all have to do with the balancing act of wealth creation, how and why we attempt to make money commentators will tell you that the words in verse 22, will they not go astray, apply, in fact, as much in Hebrew to the poor plowman as they do to the wealthier artisan. In other words, the poor man can idolize wealth as much as the rich man, and that's part of the the agony of being poor. The writer is simply asking you at this point to observe how the world goes. So he continues here with these positive statements, which we again often overlook. Those who devise good with money meet steadfast love and faithfulness. And in all toil, there is profit, and the crown of the wise is their wealth. So he's saying you can devise good with money as much as you can evil, and you can rely on good with your money as much as you can rely on yourself. God has redeemed the material world by entering it. Money is not bad in itself. This means that historic prejudice, often in the church, against people who create wealth, bankers, or who start businesses, entrepreneurs, or who invest money, venture capitalists, is wholly unjustified. In this life, we must be meant to enjoy the material things that a generous Creator has given to us, and all of us should be enjoying them. God, you'll notice if you read Genesis 2, didn't put gold in the ground for it to stay there, but rather for it to be mined or refined or crafted or for things of beauty to be made from it. He put the gold there. He made us to know that the gold was there that we would use it to his glory. and I think that's why one of the best things you can ever do for someone is to give them the gift of employment. It's a job that can give dignity and stems other evils. If you, as an employer, are looking out for the poor, to give someone a job, you do them great good. And I think that's part of what Proverbs is speaking about here. Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. But in this balancing act, remember also what we read in chapter 10. Lazy hands make for poverty. And this too is the uh, challenge, isn't it, for a culture like ours? The wealthiest culture that's ever existed in human history. We have a lot of money comparatively. You may not feel it in a rising inflation culture, but it is true, we still have a lot of money. Part of the astonishment that you will find if you ever go overseas is to discover how less well off so much of the planet is compared to the West. And so the idea that you can just accumulate a, a pile of treasure, treasure like Smog the Dragon in The Hobbit and just lie on top of it, not devising good purposes for it, is entirely discredited in the Bible. You know, the idea that God has just given me money because it's my money is not a biblical idea. And similarly, if we reject hard work or if we foster the ambition of just getting a boatload of money for ourselves because we've worked for it, what do we find? Well, we find that without hard work and without a generous faith, the tendency actually will always be back to poverty and by implication here, to sorrow. How does, people, how does wealth make people unhappy, be they rich or poor? Well, simply, it's because we look at money and we ask, surely this is what will make me happy. It's the reflex reaction, isn't it, when we get depressed. Retail therapy, let's go shopping. I worship regularly myself at the Temple of Best Buy. And you will find that it works. I think that's actually a reflection of the way that God has created, in his generosity, material good for us, because it's meant to do us good. But if you park there, if you get into the habit of looking to money to save you, you will inevitably, over time, look away from God and look away from your poor neighbor and look away from the danger that you are placing yourself in. And I think it is no coincidence that in the rise of the internet, we have the rise uh, and the accessibility of online shopping, because it's so much easier, isn't it, to turn immediately to that reward, to that kind of outlet. Proverbs 18, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it to be a wall too high to scale. It's a picture of an Iron Age security system, someone living in a fortified city behind high walls, And that person is saying to themselves what? They're saying to themselves the same kind of things we say. As long as I have this money, or this job, or these fine things, I will be fine. And it is a place of imminent danger for us. That's the Bible's warning. Money is good, possessions are fine, property is legal, and it's approved of by God. But keep it for yourself. Think to yourself that it is your birthright, and in it you find your salvation. And 1812 in Proverbs, as Eugene Peterson translates it, pride first, then the crash. And so in our own living memory, you remember Wall Street used to put it, too big to fail. But they did fail. There is no one who can say, I have been saved by my wealth. I am secure by my wealth. And there are plenty of proverbs that Jesus taught which made that same point. In fact, the person in most danger is the person who thinks so. So, make wealth by all means, but be careful not to make wealth your joy. Be careful not to make wealth your salvation. Someone else was given to be that. And then finally, how God offers us true riches through a poor man Which is hinted at here in Proverbs 14 and pointed to in the rest of the Bible. Most of you have never heard of a man called Paul Scarron. He wasn't well known even in his own day. He grew up in 17th century France having suffered from paralysis as a child. He grew up disabled. He barely scraped together a living as a working poet. But one day his life changed when he met a beautiful young woman at a party. Her name was Francaise d'Aubigny. She was a former Calvinist who was even poorer than he was. And her future uh, seemed to be her life cut out for her as a nun. Uh, Scarron met her and he proposed to her at the party that marriage to him would be marginally better than life in a convent. And he told her, I can offer you half my bread and the ugliest face in France, which is quite the pickup line. She took the offer and they were married and when asked by the notary at their wedding what dowry he would bestow upon her, her husband, the poet, said immortality. Within a few years he died and she, the once penniless and unknown wife, achieved the kind of immortality by meeting the one person she would never have had access to except through her poet husband. She became the bride of King Louis XIV of France, the wealthiest man in the world. The curious thing about the Bible is that you cannot read very far into it without seeing that it involves three things that are being put together. Wealth, poverty, and love. And that's true particularly for us in the story of the Gospel. So if you look in the Old Testament and the mechanics of the Gospel and the way it's described to us, in the idea of atonement, it always involves, you will notice, financial terms. Payment, cost, price, debt, redemption. And the people who initially attempted to follow the law of sacrifice came to believe that they were paying one-on-one for their sins with each animal that they sacrificed until it was disclosed to them in the Psalms that the whole theater and spectacle of animal sacrifice was precisely that. It was a spectacle pointing to a plan that was far more immense and a differential of cost and payment that was beyond human imagination. It was a picture of something that was too large to understand. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 ascribing the words about the Old Testament sacrifices the mouth of Jesus himself. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." See, this was the deal with atonement. It was never about animals. And as if we're overhearing the conversation between the Father and the Son in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is saying, the payment you require, Father, The payment that needs to be paid is the payment that I alone can make. And for that one purpose, Jesus says, God has prepared for him a body, a physical, material life in our world, in and which through that payment will be paid. So to rescue human beings, a human life has to be given. But not just any human life, not even a perfect human life, nor yet even a body, as if it was just another form of pagan sacrifice. Now what matters is, if you look at that verse, is the pronoun, the body you have prepared for me, the eternal Son. So this is the factor that we're looking at. This is the picture. Although in a finite form and time and place, the cost is paid at the cross of Calvary, the payment being made is infinite, because of the payee, and because of the recipients, because we are not simply material creatures, we are everlasting ones, and we could not contain the infinite spaces that have been placed within us. It's the quantum economics of the cross. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became his four, Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Like Paul Scaron's widow, all for love's sake you have been given immortality. God's love for you at the cross is complete and achieves a final cost. As someone said, it has been paid on the nail. And it may be, I suppose, if we can understand somebody who is marrying somebody worth marrying, and perhaps we could imagine then someone worth dying for, the question that the book of Romans asks is, why then would God die for us? For we who in moral terms have not only the ugliest faces in France, or anywhere else for that matter, but also have the complexion of death and sin to boot, so even here we're told his God who for his own sake and for his own glory and out of his own mercy and out of his own love gives to us who and what he gives to us that which is of most value to him and again it's an economics of sort there's a transaction being taken there is an exchange being made his wealth for our destitution his life for our life. And so this word here, these words in verse 31 are tantalizingly remnant of the remnants of the gospel, aren't they? The righteous man or woman finds refuge, yes, at the time of their death, but yes, even more so in his death. That's the refuge. That's the economy of it. And I really think this is important because what evangelicalism has tended to do in the last years is to kind of separate, if you will, a theology of our gospel salvation from the theology of our gospel responsibility, the living out of God's mercy in every situation. So you see here, God isn't asking you to do anything for the poor man or for the poor woman that he hasn't already done, far far more than that for you and me in our need and bankruptcy. And I put it to you that you and I cannot, in good conscience, freely receive the gift of economics from the cross of Jesus for ourselves and yet turn away unmoved or inactive from the poor in spirit, the poor in health, and the poor in pocketbook. We serve a God of mercy who has given and given and given in Christ and held nothing back. And we now, as his redeemed ambassadors in this miserly world, are called to work and to create and to share in his glory. Let's pray as we ask him to help us do that. Father, the scope of global poverty seems massive. No wonder our Lord told us the poor you will have with you always. And yet his life as a poor man was devoted to showing mercy to those who were poor. To those who were poor because they had no idea about the goodness of God. To those who were poor because they had no capacity within themselves to respond to that goodness. And to those who were poor because by some injustice or by their own foolishness, they had no hope. Lord, you have given us such riches in Christ Jesus, and you have given us those riches not just to be selfish and to be self-centered and to do good and to see good done only to ourselves, but rather to share that goodness and that kindness, both in the gospel message and also in gospel mercy to those who are also materially poor. Lord, would you help us and guide us, we pray, in these things. In Christ's name.